0: The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghostlight podcast, a behind the curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. We're back. We've been off for the summer, but season 2 begins today and I'm very excited to have returning guest, Utah Symphony Music Director Terry Fisher. Welcome, Terry. Hello, nice to be with you again. You're our most frequent guest. At this point, let's see if we can keep that running. I want to talk to you about the 1718 season, which has just begun, and I know that there are many interesting projects to discuss. But I want to focus today on the recording project that the Utah Symphony will do this year, specifically the symphony cycle of uh, Camille Saint-Saens. Tell us what the importance of this repertoire is to you, and describe your connection to French romanticism in general.
1: Well, I'm French educated, you know, this French is my mother language, and I live is the in the most western part of Switzerland, mm-hmm. and Geneva is almost invaded by France. It's a little, pe- like a peninsula at the end right. of Switzerland, southwest, and it's just this, this little part, you know, coming out, you know, like a little... Like a finger or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. out of Switzerland, sure. and we are really surrounded by France. Right, all the city is. So um, when I went to school there, you know, we were following French football. And, uh, later, French politics, uh, even more than what was going on in Switzerland, mm-hmm. because Switzerland is divided in three three very distinctive parts with the German and the Italian and the French. Um, Now it's different, but, you know, in my education I was very, very close to to France. I had French teachers also for music, you know, for for flute as well, and Paris is the attraction, it's just a few hours by train with a TGV, and very often I used to go to, to Paris just for the weekend when I was a student, just to go to bookshops and to buy scores, to meet different people. I met in Paris, you know, Prominent composers, mm. uh, Boulez, Messiaen, Dutilleux recently, a few years before he died. And Maurice Oana, I don't know if you heard about this uh, French composer sure. as well. And uh, lately, also uh, Tristan Murray, We will perform one of his pieces at the end of this season. Right, right. So very close to the French culture in general. And then in music, what has always attracted me, without even talking about being a flute player or lately conductor, is the suspension of ideas mm-hmm. when they float in the air and then you can play with them in one or the other direction. And the, the idea of suggestion mm-hmm. as well. So, and this is very, very typical of French music in all repertoire. For example, if you play Vivaldi or Corelli, it's not the same them than Jean-Philippe Rameau. Right. You know, it's the same style, in this is the same influences, but the sound is projected with this kind of je ne sais quoi. Sure. Uh, which is making the particularity. Sure. It's the same later on, you know, and Saint-Saëns is competing with Berlioz, Dvorak, Wagner, he knew Wagner very well and was influenced by him. And even later, it's... Debussy versus Stravinsky and Bartók. You know, this difference of texture is obvious. And even later, Boulez, Dutilleux Messiaen versus Xenakis, Wolfgang Riem, John Adams. You know, it's a completely different way of making things with an orchestra texture or also in chamber music with this always feeling that you want to know more. Right. Because it's not, oh, if you take La Boheme, which I know the orchestra is going to be performing very soon, you know, you take my heart, I love you, take it or I kill you. A little bit, I, I make, you know, sure. shortcuts. No, but you, uh, you just described an opera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And with French music, he's always, you know, yeah, it's he, just a little bit, you can have this French flair, you know, like you always, you know, with a open shirt and a cigarette you know (laughs) "Like, shall we really do it you know and just take three days to decide (laughs) so this this is a very genuine attraction in in my way of not in my daily life when I have to take decisions as a music director of course but as a just just let it go you know take things serious but not too seriously (laughs) yeah
0: i I love this notion of um wanting to know more i think it particularly applies to this music because let's be honest you're you're talking about music for which most american musicians know nothing actually i mean these symphonies are not often performed in the united states with the exception of the third symphony the organ symphony of course so since most of these pieces might well be utah symphony premieres Is there a special challenge to record unfamiliar music? You've recorded a lot in your life, and whenever you've done pieces that were new to the orchestra, is it especially challenging?
1: I think it's a chance. It's not a challenge. Ah. For the very simple uh, reason that when an orchestra like the Utah Symphony at the level they are playing now, they are so well prepared that this notion of discovering is taking all of us to producing the very best we can Mm. But and there is less artistic challenge because if you record Dvorak, New World or Tchaik five, so many habits, preconception. We know what what the audience likes, what some commentators like. You know, we are surrounded by cliches and preconceptions we should not even have in our minds. But of course, they are there. With saint is and I like this very much. Is complete discovery. Sure. The style, the articulation. The balance, the tempi. Some of the players were asking me the tempo of uh, a few movements uh, of the second symphony we we're starting the cycle with, and they were totally. They almost had a heart attack when they saw the the tempo of the last movement, which right. is incredibly fast. Incredibly fast. Yeah. Yes. But they took the challenge, and you know, it it creates this this fresh approach we should normally have to any single performance. Yeah. And this is corresponding very well with this smiley, shiny way of expressing yourself. Yeah. The, the second movement of this symphony, for example, is like a recitative of Saint-Saëns and Dalila, you mm-hmm. know, one of the most dramatic saint opera. operas. Right. Or a little cut in chaos. You know, after the dramatic first movement, you have this... People hardly play, mm. put, you know, weight on strings... And there is this phrase of th- three times three bars, and we developed the idea that we, we finish every time the section with a question mark. So instead of naturally, if you allow me singing in your show, of course. instead of playing pom-pom, <laughs> tin-tom, pagada, we are working on pom-pom, tin-tom, pagada. Sure. And as I often say, open ended, not yeah, closed. Yeah, beauty is in details, but yeah. just lifting the end of this sure. is create. People are looking to each other in different ways, just because we don't make an accent of course. on the last bar. So this is what the French culture is about. Also, when you listen to poems or painters, you know, Manet and all these guys. You know, if you go in a museum, you have to go to different distances to see, is it really yellow? Is it yellow, really blue? Or what color is it actually? What do you think? And it's always this desire I was talking earlier on of, you know, this. it creates a permanent attraction. And this is, even in Romantism, very, very, very strongly different than Brahms, Wagner, and, you know, the the typical Romantic Heavy, bright, deep sound we usually work on.
0: We're back with Terry Fisher, music director of the Utah Symphony, discussing the Camille Saint-Saëns recording project. I, I love this idea of the music being more about the questions than the answers and having this sort of open-ended opportunity for discovery as a group. Is it your hope that, as I said, group discovery will be apparent in the recording too? That the freshness you talk about will be obvious in what any listener can hear when they put their headphones
1: on? It's not a hope and it's not impossible to predict. I just don't care. <laughs> you know, we do the best we can. And that we means work.
0: I've asked the worst possible question. No, no, it's,
1: it's, it's fantastic. Everybody wants to yeah. know that, but I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting myself in sure, sure. So what I do a lot in this nearly now three days of rehearsal, we have the first concert tonight, I talked to more than usual. I gave a lot of metaphors to the orchestra. Like, for example, in the scherzo, there's a place, pa 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 -pa pa-pa-pa. It comes like an obsession. And just out of the blue in the rehearsal, I I didn't have the right character in that. So I said to the woodwinds, you know, you have to imagine you're a little child and you're working with the family in the woods and your parents are walking faster than you are and you're shouting from the back from the back hey I do exist wait for me pa 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 the French music allows this kind of of, uh, yeah. of metaphors and it speaks immediately or I say you know it's just like somebody wants to give you a kiss and you just at the last million of a second turn the head you know <laughs> and you know this is really a huge world of metaphors and poetry mm. we yeah. can put with grace uh, into this music and I have to say the orchestra has been incredibly responsive did it work
0: the one in the scherzo about the kid chasing the parents did you get your sound totally yes <laughs> yeah. I, I love it yeah. I, i'd like to talk a little bit about the relationship that the utah symphony will start with hyperion records which is a very important european record label it will be the first time the utah symphony at least in recent memory has recorded with a predominantly european label we have really enjoyed our relationship with reference recordings and we're excited to add hyperion to our profile so do you hope this is the beginning of a long partnership talk a little bit about the hyperion situation
1: yeah, Hyperion is, is a label I have always admired uh, for years as, you know, they have such a way of developing repertoire and mixing very known stuff and less known stuff. And I've done, I uh, didn't count, but at least a dozen of uh, CDs for this um, label Hyperion, over the years with three or four different orchestras. Simon Perry is is somebody who he is a real artist. Yeah. You know, he does care about sound, about the right people doing the right thing for the right project, which will speak to both you know specialist commentators, historian audience, give sense. But he is somebody I've, I have always admired for his way of you know being a CEO thinking like an artist he's not selling shoes or cars right he's, he's selling dreams Absolutely. you know and this is you know to have at the helm of such a big organization somebody like simon it's I think it's it's very inspiring so I was of course delighted that we decided to uh, extend our collaboration with the user Symphony I'm so involved with i'm totally focused on this 1718 season, doing three full CDs with many pieces. We don't record only the five symphonies. Also some little other pieces. And one very big, totally unknown piece, Trois Poèmes de la Foi. Right. And honestly, my thinking has limits when I work on sounds, which is I'm totally committed to what I do. Now, if we do meetings and we talk about the future of the programming of the Utah Symphony, of course, we're thinking about it. And we're already talking with Simon about a new project for 1819 and we are of course active on that
0: more to come on that I'm sure well I think it's great news that that you plan on continuing this new legacy of recording you're creating at the Utah Symphony Utah Symphony used to record a lot and then like many orchestras there was a long gap and you've you've brought it back and I think that's to your credit and I also have to say, based on the passion you've shown for this repertoire during this short conversation, it's pretty clear to me that, once again, Simon has chosen the right person for a project. You're the perfect guy to be doing this. I want to ask you one more question. Of course, it's the hardest when I leave it, always to the end, to put you on the spot, Maestro. But, and I know you hear this question all the time, but I'm actually not sure how many chances you get to answer it. So I'll ask it of you now. Why is recording important for orchestras? Why do it? What's gained? What's the point? I know a lot of people wonder this. It's not important. It's crucial. Yeah.
1: You know, what is an art organization without legacy? What is an art organization without developing its image in the industry? What is an organization without project pushing both the musicians and the organization to their boundaries, to situations they could not have imagined they were going to be pushed to and have fun? And like the perfect example is the second symphony, you know. People had to prepare it, the musicians, in such a way that it sounds already different. And it's only the first piece of, uh, I didn't count the number of pieces, but probably uh, 10 pieces right. we going to record the, right. the, this year. So I am well aware CDs are less and less sold uh, since a few years because of the development of the technology. They sell a lot of uh, downloading them right. from... Hyperion's website. Right. And I know it's very successful with Hyperion. Yeah. On top of all the reason I just gave, there's one more reason, which is the most important one. When we are talking in our vision for the Utah Symphony about aiming to excellence, I can, with a lot of pride, say on behalf of the musicians, if I compare the first recording we did, whatever, three years ago, probably, I guess, and this one, Already the maturity, the confidence, the commitment, the the realization on what it brings to the collective, it's simply invaluable. A recording like this week is replacing 10 speeches of motivation and 20 concerts trying to be at our super top every single bar. So you know, adding everything I said in the last two and a half minutes, you know, it makes that it is just an irresistible and unavoidable act for an art organization to continue to aim for. This is creating this unstoppable vision we have to be as close as possible to excellence every two months.
0: I love the answer and I'm drawn again to the metaphor you made earlier of the of the kid trying to catch up to the parents and saying, hey, I exist. And it seems to me that recordings can be another example of this. It's a document, it's a way of saying to the world, we were here, we did this, this is what we had achieved at this moment in time. I like the idea of leaving those signposts throughout our history. I think it's really yes,
1: it's showing the industry, you know, that we are doing this, yeah. and then they can like it or not. It's right. not important. It's not, you know. I and, and I hope people don't like it as well. You know, <laughs> it's not that you. Yeah. I'm. I'm not looking pushing this project with the Symphony for international recognition. It's not the point. The point is the making of. This is what we need, and this is what makes us better every 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 season. Very inspiring words, Maestro.
0: This is the very beginning of a a season-long project. Three discs, like you said, probably ten pieces in all. Very ambitious, very exciting. And the way you speak of it makes me really anxious to hear the final product. So thanks for being the first guest of Season 2 on the Ghostlight Podcast. Hopefully you'll come back for a fourth visit. Anytime. Okay, thank you very much, Maestro. My pleasure. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony, Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.